Welcome to this three-part roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Rational Management of Hospitalized Patients with Hyponatremia, Application to Patient Cases. This discussion was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Atska America Pharmaceutical, Inc. It was recorded in December 2013 during the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in Orlando. Part one of this podcast series focuses on developing hyponatremia protocols in institutions. Hello, my name is Joe Dasta, Professor Emeritus at The Ohio State University College of Pharmacy, Adjunct Professor of the University of Texas. I'm pleased to serve on the faculty and as chair of this educational initiative. Joining me today is Dr. Amy Zerba, who is clinical pharmacist specialist in the Adult Medical Critical Care Unit at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. Also joining us is Dr. Jody Pepin. Jody is the Director of Pharmacy at Seton Medical Center Williamson, which is part of the Seton Healthcare family in Austin, Texas. She also serves as a Clinical Assistant Professor of Health Outcomes and Pharmacy Practice, University of Texas College of Pharmacy. Hi, Joe. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with a general discussion and discussion of protocol developments at institutions. While the clinical and economic impact of hyponatremia, defined usually as a serum sodium of less than 135 milliequivalents per liter, is well documented, it's often an overlooked electrolyte disorder. Many institutions do not have hyponatremia protocols. And barriers to the development of a local protocol would include things like not appreciating the significance of hyponatremia, not necessarily identifying a champion for this condition. For example, which of the medical staff owns this condition? Is it nephrology, endocrinology, or is it the hospitalists? And then time. It simply takes a lot of time to do this, and hospital pharmacists are very, very busy people to begin with. Now, there was an article published in the October issue of the American Journal of Medicine this year, 2013, that does provide recommendations from an expert panel on diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of hyponatremia. It's really an update from the 2007 version. So, Amy, you've looked at this paper. Do you think it will help and be useful to pharmacists in developing hyponatremia protocols at their institution? Absolutely, Joe. This is a great paper which helps provide guidance on differentiating between hyperosmolar hyponatremia, since there are dilutional hyponatremias, which are oftentimes difficult to treat. The authors offer recommendations on the most appropriate treatment options and the rate of correction for both acute and chronic hyponatremia. Good. So to get an initiative like this off the ground, you have to justify its need with clinical studies, cost-effectiveness studies, and other data that may exist. Now, with this condition, the only cost-effectiveness studies that have been performed have been with Tolvaptan in conditions such as heart failure and SIADH. And typically, companies don't perform these cost analyses to get a drug approved because it's not required. So these were uh, studies which took the clinical data and applied it to large databases where there's cost data. And there was a clinical offset, a financial offset, you know, of using Tolvaptan in those patients compared to standard of care. 
Uh, and we need to have more studies like this to understand our relevant therapies. It's also important to have local data to justify the need of a new therapy or existing therapy that's relevant to your institution. For example, we know that hyponatremia can contribute to patient falls because it causes dizziness, fatigue, confusion, and steadiness, etc. So, Jamie, are there specific national benchmarks for how hyponatremia is the cause of these falls, both inpatient and, and or in the emergency department? I'm not specifically aware of any national benchmarks that are related to that, but there was a study by Renenboog done in Belgium that has accumulating evidence that suggests that chronic hyponatremia can be responsible for unapparent adverse events such as falls. He showed that almost 21% of these patients who presented to an emergency department did so because of a fall, and they were hyponatremic as to, compared to 5% of the controls. I found that very intriguing. We have a falls team at you know local system, and they didn't incorporate anything at all to do with sodium levels. They were looking at sedating medications or maybe, you know, some sort of physical reason that a person would have fallen, slips, trips, and falls, wet things on the floors or whatever, and they were looking at all that. So I kind of inserted myself into this falls committee and had them look at sodium levels based on the interesting outcomes of Renenburg's study. And so now when a patient comes into our hospital, because of a fall, we look to see if sodium level was low upon admission, or if they fall in the hospital, we look to see if their sodium was decreasing during their stay or was perhaps what we consider low but asymptomatic, which this study showed that while these patients were deemed asymptomatic, they actually did have gait disturbances which were responsible for their falls. So I'm starting to heighten the awareness in our local hospital to get people thinking about that because it's not like the first place they go. And when they see a sodium of 130, they think it's normal or the patient's, you know, doing fine and they're asymptomatic and that has nothing to do with it. And then you could stretch that into some sort of protocol or medication reconciliation where the pharmacist gets involved in looking at the patient's medication profile to see if they're on any drugs that cause hypometremia that could be stopped or decreased so that they might prevent that. So as far as a national benchmark goes, I'm not aware of any in any studies out there, but I know these are ideas that I'm trying to incorporate in my system, and I would encourage others to do the same. And I would guess that you're not unique and that many institutions that do have a falls committee, A, don't have a pharmacist, but B, may not be considering electrolytes like sodium, whereas, like you mentioned, thinking of things more like sedatives or antihypertensives or physical entities that might, might cause patients to fall. Most of the time, the people on the falls committee are physical therapists or cardiac rehab nurses or therapists and nursing, nursing practice people, and they don't really think about pharmacy as being a reason. They think about for other things, but not necessarily being able to help them with uh, their falls. Although falls would occur in the general ward, there may be some issues in the ICU with respect to early mobilization in your population, Amy? Yes, we haven't necessarily studied that in our patient population, but Joe, I think you bring up a fantastic point. In the era of being conscious about stopping sedatives in order to mobilize patients, one may also think about looking at serum sodium to ensure that it is safe to mobilize a patient, and potentially it might be more difficult to mobilize a patient that has a lower serum sodium as opposed to someone who has a normal serum sodium and getting rid of any gait disturbances that may potentially impair them from walking. This concludes this part of the roundtable discussion. If you'd like to hear more about managing hyponatremia in hospitalized patients, please listen to the other two parts of this podcast series. 
To access other educational opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash hyponatremia cases.